You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's great to be back. We are in a laid-back time of the year here in Southwest Florida, um, and we are in the middle of a vacation mood kind of series on the book of 1 John called Kipona Aloha, which means deep love. And let me tell you, thank you, Carl, for not only the bottle of wine, but I know you did an excellent job while I was gone. Thank you so much. Let's hear it for him. And I'm glad you were here and excited to be a part of it. And who's with you today? Mary Louise? Well, I know his wife, but... The son of my niece. The son of my niece. Okay, great. It's good to have him here as well. Um, We have learned a lot about love over the last few weeks, and if it's not that it's a feeling, it's not that it's sentimental, it's not that it's just a concept, but today we're going to learn in 1 John chapter 3 how it is love in action, like that it is in word and deed, that we want to be both. And so today we're going to be reading in this section um, on 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, these words, and then get into the message. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3. This is going to be great. I think it's fascinating. We need to love, this passage says. And love, he says, is in word and truth and deed and truth. That is, not just in words, not just in ideas, but actually in Truth and in deed. So we're going to be looking at that. There are churches that really focus on deeds. That is, we're going to be here, we're going to love people, and they're short on truth. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those churches. Um, They aren't sure about what the truth is, and we're not quite sure, you know. They're afraid to push any of their truth on someone else. Have you ever heard, you know, this is my truth and all that? Well, what they're saying by that statement of we're not sure, I don't want to push my truth on you, they're also admitting then that they believe that truth in general is relative, that there isn't a fixed truth of any type, and so they will help with food and shelter and jobs and justice in society, and they can improve their working conditions, but it's just half the equation, okay? Now, there are other churches, and probably a lot of them, that are really strong on truth. They preach truth. They talk about truth. They talk about absolute truth. They talk about doing everything just right and having it all down, and the formulas and the doctrines are there all in a row. But 
they say, you know, all that stuff, doing these social ministry things, that's just material goods. That doesn't really matter. It's all going to burn anyways. And the real important thing is the spiritual. And they make this divide between the material world and the spiritual world, which is really stupid because they aren't. I mean, I am a spiritual material person, aren't you? Right? They think it's all about eternity, all about the next world, very little about here. And we here at Thrive want to be a church, as John talks about it, of word and deed, truth and love. He speaks about how those two go together and need to go together. And so in this passage of 1 John 3, 11 to 18, we're going to be looking at these three things today, how this word gives us what our mission really is and how there are signs that we're on the right track and finally the power to accomplish it. So mission, sign, and power today. So what John reports here, by the way, under mission, is something that he says at the beginning of this passage, for this message that you have heard from the beginning. So in other words, it's been around for a while. It's not something new. It's not something uh, revelatory in one sense. In fact, it's something that God's people were called to be in about as a mission already from the beginning. Uh, you think I preach long. Just read the book of Deuteronomy sometime because it is Moses' one long sermon, and it's not even outlined well. You know, it's not like point by point. It's just he goes on and on and on. The entire book of Deuteronomy is one sermon. But in it, he has some great things to say. And he, he speaks, Moses speaks about how God has called us to do exactly what John is saying. This was thousands of years before. Deuteronomy 15, if any, among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land and that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need whatever it may be. Nothing new here. So John is really restating what God has already spoken to his people and how they should live. Now, why this is important that it's also in Deuteronomy is also why Moses at the beginning of Deuteronomy kind of spells out why it's so important. It's not that it's just simply the right thing to do. It's not simply that um, you should care about others or love others, but it also is about your mission in this world. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 4 about everything that he is speaking in his message. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. So how you're living, what you're doing, how you're following what God wants will be wisdom and understanding in the sight of people who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And Moses says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So whatever they're doing, how they were treating their brothers and sisters who were poor, who happened to fall into these categories, who were marginalized in whatever way, how they were treating them was not simply to do the right thing, but also reflected on the very character of the God they worshiped. Okay? 
People determine what they believe about the God you profess by how you live. Did you catch that? People around you look at you and they determine what is the kind of God you are talking about by your actions, by your deeds. So if you are, and I'm sorry to say there are those, not here, but in Christianity who are uptight and judgmental and critical and withholding from others and kind of blaming them for their misfortunes in life. You've heard people like that, seen people like that. Probably there have been posts in social media like that from Christians. You know, they, people who see that assume that's the kind of God you are worshiping. Judgmental, critical, hyper, um, like focused on blaming. But if you're generous, if you're giving, if you're loving, if you're sacrificial, if you're conscientious, if you are self-effacing, that you don't even focus on yourself, but you're focusing on others, they will start to assume that that is who, that's the God that you worship too. It's mission work when we're loving indeed and truth. So Israel was all to be very different from the societies around them. The societies that they came out of, like Egypt, was set up for the people who were on top to stay on top. And Israel was a society that looked at the poor and the marginalized and didn't blame them for it, but actually lifted them up and tried to help them so that everybody had enough. It was an adjust society, not by exact justice, you know, like the law should come down on everybody but a just society and restorative justice, healing justice, to help others out in their needs. When they saw something wrong, they decided, how are we going to fix this and do something about it? To lift people up. And God called them. In the midst of, I don't know if you realize this, so where Israel is, is fascinating. It's this little piece of land the size of Vermont. Not big as far as our states go, right? And it's between the great powers of the world. It was never the great power. It was never in charge for that long of itself. It was always between Egypt, the big breadbasket of the world, and Babylon and Syria, Assyria, all these major powers, the Greeks, the Romans, everyone else. But they happened to be the place in between, kind of what was called the land bridge. And everybody went through them to go somewhere else. And God said, that's your mission. I'm not putting you in the, on a peninsula, on an island. I'm not cloistering behind a wall. I'm putting you in a place where everybody will see who you are and what you're like. And you, all y'all, yes, all y'all, the proper southern plural for this, are a priesthood for God. He said, you are all my kings and my priests. And what does that mean? They didn't all sit on the throne, and they didn't all, uh, weren't all in the palace, and they weren't all at the temple, but they were called to be a holy priesthood, everyone. The word priest, I think the best metaphor, because it's really actually a metaphorical word, really is a bridge builder, okay? That is, it is the bridge between God and humanity. And the goal of a priest was to represent people to God and represent God to people. And all of Israel was to do that. 
The New Testament moves on with that and moves it out of a race-based or ethnic-based covenant that Israel was founded upon. And Peter now says, it's all y'all, all who are called by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your mission, to be priests, to represent God to the people and the people to God to see in your neighborhoods, at your workplaces, and see that you need to be praying for them. And you lift up their needs and their burdens to them. And that in your interactions, they get to see through you who your God is and what God is like. So at Thrive, we've said from the beginning that we exist to bless and disciple people. And the blessed part is to represent God's blessing, God's goodness, God's grace, to love people when they even can be unlovable. Have you ever met people like that? Still bless them. Don't curse them. Because that's how you get to show who your God is to others. So if people are looking at how you are living, your actions, your attitudes, people how you, at, how you interact with people who have less power than you, who may not have money, who don't have a lot of possessions, who are kind of on the outskirts of society, who don't quite fit in. What are they going to think about the God that you worship? If you're giving your goods away, your wealth, your power away, your time away, if you're opening yourself up to others, then people are going to start saying, wow, what's going on there? I don't get it. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. In our day and age, it's the same way it's always been. That's crucial, this letter says. First John says, in word and truth and deed and love all together, not one or the other, not just saying things and doing whatever, but they all fit together. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, John. I do, you know, you might be a good exegete. You might understand. This passage is talking about brothers, how I treat my brothers. I'm assuming that means within the Christian church. I love one another. Jesus said that in the Gospel of John, love one another. He didn't say love the world. He said love one another. Um, so does that mean it's only about how I treat other Christians? Well, it's a good place to start, let me tell you, okay? <laughs> and I've seen in Christian churches where people don't treat each other that well, um, and maybe you have too. Um, and so a lot of people try to draw the line, well, if they're in our fellowship, we love them. If they're outside of our fellowship, we ignore them. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Um, in fact, I, so bluntly, um, when I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, as a campus pastor at LSU, I met another pastor just a couple miles away north of the campus who was in charge of a church that was in a poorer section of town. And basically, his, he said, Jesus said we are to love our brothers and sisters, and so if they come to our church, we'll love them. But the, 
And so they even had it set up so that the church had a fence all the way around it. And during the given week, you couldn't get inside. It was all locked. On Sunday morning, it would be open just during the time of worship that you could go through the front doors. If you wanted to meet someone or greet someone at that church, you had to ring a doorbell on the side of the building. But the doorbell on the side of the building was behind a bush, by the way. <laughs> and unless you knew where the, that doorbell was, you would have no idea it was there. That church closed about 20 years ago. They lost their mission. They lost their mission. Somehow they forgot the words, not just of John, but of Jesus and Paul, who also talk about this, where Jesus has, says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And he didn't define neighbor as only people who are like you. He defined neighbor through the parable of the good Samaritan of anybody whom you happen to come across in need. And I think Paul balances it out well in the book of Galatians, where he says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. I think everyone includes everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So yes, if there are needs within this fellowship. I'm hoping we're meeting them and that we are loving each other and caring for each other and praying for each other and lifting each other up. But it doesn't limit us to just within this fellowship. It's your mission. The, the, late, the last Roman emperor, pagan Roman emperor, was named Julian the Apostate. And Julian was appalled. He was appalled at Christianity. And he criticized it. He wrote a letter about it. And he said this in his letter. Um, Why do we need not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? Now, you have to understand, at the time, the Romans thought atheism was anything that was not Roman in terms of beliefs in gods. And, and the Christians were considered atheists because they didn't worship at the Roman temples. They didn't offer sacrifices. They didn't even have temples. You know. So they might believe in some philosophy or god, but it, was, it didn't fit their definition of religion. Okay. And then he goes on, when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. He hated the Christians because of how good they were to everybody. <laughs> Would that be the case today? Would that be the case today? They care so much for even people that don't like them. What did we do with them? That's how he became the last Roman emperor, by the way. So it was the mission of the church to love in actions and in words, in truth, and in loving actions and deeds. It's our mission today. Secondly, we talk in this passage, uh, John talks about the signs. It's not only the mission to love in action and word and deed, it's also a sign of how you know that you belong to the people of God. He puts it this way in 1 John 2. I think you uh, preached on this at some point, Carl. Um, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. 
So one of the big problems, we said we don't get a direct assault um, from uh, John in his gospel or in his letter here. But there was a group of people who said a lot of words that sounded very Christian, who spoke the same kind of language, but who had a whole different attitude and different motive. And they separated themselves and left the Christian fellowship in the community to do their own thing. And so John in through this letter is saying, this is how you know you belong. This is how you know you're, you're this, these are signs that you belong and you're part of the Christian fellowship and you're following Jesus. And uh, the first sign was simply a test. He could see that they were not being truthful. They were not confessing the truth, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So in 1 John 4, he says, By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It seems like these brothers and sisters, or supposed brothers and sisters, were talking about Jesus, but that he wasn't truly human, and he wasn't fully divine. He was one or the other, maybe, but some common... They didn't understand... The, the craziness that God would choose to become a human being, that he, God would love this world so much that he would send his son into this world in the flesh to be open and vulnerable and absolutely involved in the nitty-gritty of this world, that God should be far off. And so a lot of people, even today, can't wrap their mind around this. Oh, Jesus, yeah, he was, a hum- he was probably a very good teacher. I think he had a lot of good things to say. Well, that's not of the truth. That's not the fullness of the truth that we know. Those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the one sent by God, the Son of God himself in the flesh, that's the first test. The second test he brings up is an integrity test. In 1 John 2, he goes on and says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in it. The basic principle, by the way, of leadership is do what you say you will do. Do what you say you will do. If you say, hey, I'm going to be there, be there. (laughs) Show up. If you say no, or if you say yes, follow through with the no, follow through with the yes. And people can, it seems like these people that were in the midst of Christian fellowship for a while said all the right things, but couldn't follow through with them, didn't follow. In fact, they had a different motive behind it, didn't want to follow through with it. Do you know people that say all the right things and do all the wrong or just don't do anything? You know, one of my diagnostic MRI things falls into these two, that is spiritual diagnostic. I look at people, and when I hear people say, you know, the Lord really called me to. Have you ever heard people speak that way? You might almost take out the Lord really called me to out of the equation and just say, I wanted to do this. Because <laughs> that's basically what they're saying. And also people who just decide not to be part of a community, but say, I'm going to start this, I'm going to do this without any backing, any support, any prayer, any guidance from anyone else, they're self-directed. Watch out for people who just go off on their own to do their own thing. That's not 
how God, Paul himself, by the way, in the book of Acts, did not say, hey, I think the Lord's calling me to start missionary work. He, among the elders in Antioch, together with them, they were praying, and the Spirit moved the other elders to speak and say, God is saying to set apart Barnabas and Paul, not one, both together for missionary work. The call came through others to do that. Watch out for somebody who creates a self-calling to do something. So those are two of the tests. The third, this one you might love because it's the love test. Oh, love is so wonderful, isn't it? That's if you think it's a feeling. 1 John 3, 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You know, but we better define that word love a little more right now because so often, you know, I love my home. I love Florida. I love the ocean. I love pizza. I love my brothers and sisters. Do you understand how confusing that can be? We use the word for everything. John clarifies what love is here. He says this is the definition in 1 John 3, 16 to 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love how does God's love abide in him? Love is not a feeling. It's not a sentiment. It's not a desire. It's not an attraction. It is actually sacrificial action. It is doing something for others as Christ sacrificed himself for us. So if, in fact, if you do something for someone that you give sacrificially to someone or something, Time, money, energy, your privacy is invaded because somebody comes over. And you're not doing it because it feels good. In fact, you don't even feel good about doing it, but you know it needs to be done. It's good for the other person. They're going to be beneficial. That's probably more loving than almost anything else because you're not doing it to feel good. You're not doing it to get something out of it. In fact, you're getting nothing out of it. And I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus Christ dying on the cross was not a feel-good moment for him. (laughs) What? Yeah. He wasn't going up there, oh, man, this is wonderful. Look at all these people I'm seeing. This is the highlight of my... Do you understand what I mean by that? It wasn't a feel, but he was doing it absolutely for us totally outside of him, not for anything. He benefited nothing from that sacrifice. He gained nothing from that sacrifice. He already had everything. He had all the glory that he'd ever need. He doesn't get more glory because of his death. He doesn't get more um, blessings. He doesn't get any more. He already had it all. What he does is he gives it all up. And it was painful. It was agonizing. And it was the most loving thing this world has ever seen or could ever have. So that's the mark of love. When you do things for people and you don't get anything out of it. Now, maybe you do get something out of it, a feeling of satisfaction. But you're just doing it for the right reason. 
These are the three signs that you belong to Jesus. That you confess that he is fully God and fully human. That you um, are living consistent to an extent at least, <laughs> between your words and your actions, and that you love, that you're willing to give and sacrifice for the sake of others and not necessarily get anything out of it. And you might be going like, well, that sounds great, John, but how in God's green earth am I going to ever be like that? Then you're in the same boat I am. And that's why our third point today is power. It's impossible to do it without the right kind of power. So this Emperor Julian, who was so ticked off at the Christians who seemed to be caring about our poor and treating our poor better than, they, than we treated them and all that type of stuff, you know what he did? He tried to enact a whole system of bureaucracy he proposed that the priests at all these pagan temples would get out there and be like the Christians and start serving the poor. He legislated. He rewarded. He wanted a revival of paganism and pagan worship. So he ordered all the priests and all the religious people to get out there and love those. It was a total failure. Didn't work. Religion is not going to do it. You know, religious people are not the ones that are doing the greatest things in this world. Okay? One of the problems was, well, you know, polytheism itself in the Roman world was really a competition of different gods and goddesses to get more glory and more honor for themselves. And the, so the whole system was set up for the wrong reason, whereas the Christian gospel is where the glory is given away. by G. He loses it all. Upon the cross, he cries out in his forsakenness there. He gives it all away. It takes a special power. It takes a love from God himself to even approximate a love for others. And what's amazing about God's love, and um, I was listening to a number of podcasts on our way up and back for our wonderful 20-ish hour road trip to Michigan and back, um, not all at once, but still, we listened to a number of podcasts, um, and, um, and one woman called it the insanity of God, that he would choose to become fully human, knowing how self-centered and egotistical and broken human beings are. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But that's what God chooses to do. Now, guilt might work for a little while. And that's what Julian was kind of banking on. Guilt or compulsion might work for a little while. You know, kind of like those wonderful sad puppy ads that you see on TV and you feel so bad about, oh my gosh, I need to give some money because these, these puppies are in cages and dying and all this stuff. And I understand that sentiment and we just turn them off now if we can or move on to something else because, because guilt, basically you're then trying to create a, you know, my money now becomes my guilt removal system. You know, I'll just give 20 bucks here. And then another ad, or you come to church and you see this poverty, uh, a poster with poor children on it. And you're going like, oh, 
that's, and so then you try to give a little more, and then you have to give more. You never, but it, the motivation is just not, it's not going to last. And instead, you're trying through your money to alleviate your sense of guilt and just get back to a comfort level. Um, at the end of the movie, Schindler's List, anybody watch that movie ever? Um, it, it's a good movie in a lot of ways, okay? But you notice he's got kind of a guilt removal system going on. He's trying to help everybody he can, but then at the end of the movie, all the Jews who, whom he saved come to thank him, and he goes, it's not enough. Why did he keep my watch? I should have given that away. I could have saved somebody. My car, I could have saved a number of people. Because when you go down the path of trying to use guilt as your motivation, it's never going to be enough. It's not going to be a power to get you to, you can't guilt people to love others. I know parents try to do it all the time. <laughs> Call your mother, she's worried, you know, and all that. But you know what those calls are like? If you don't, it's like, oh, I've got to live, you know. You know how that works, right? Guilt just doesn't work long term. And it actually means that you're not doing it out of love. You're just doing it out of obligation. You can never do enough to feel good about yourself by what you do. John knows in this letter that guilt's going to kill you if that becomes the motivation. Religion doesn't make it happen. He says in 1 John 3, at the beginning, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. It's that insanity of God that he has chosen me, this rebellious, absolutely hate-filled, egotistical, self-justifying kid, and he chose to adopt me. And he knew it was going to be a difficult situation the rest of his life to struggle with me. That's who we are. That becomes the reason. That's the power. How a little child so sure that daddy's going to take care that we can love and be vulnerable to others. John is so astounded and in wonder and awe about God's love for us, he knows that that we can, that becomes the motivation. And in 1 John 3, 16, the beginning of that, he says it this way, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. We don't know love because of how loving we are. We know how, what love is because we've been loved so well, so completely. And so not out of emptiness, but out of the fullness of God's love. Not out of guilt, but out of joy. Not out of you better, but you get to. Out of the opportunities that are around you. It'll, that kind of love melts your heart, transforms your being so that you know since I've been loved this way, I can love others as well. So the mission, the sign, the power. That's what we find here. The deep love of God can move us so that we can be a church that in word and deed, in truth and love together, we can testify to the goodness of God in this community and world. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for a great vacation for Lise and myself. But thank you, Lord, for bringing us back to this family and 
to such a wonderful word you have for us, that you have loved us so much that we are your children. Lord, we know some people within our midst are going through difficult times. We pray your healing hand be upon Karen, um, but at this point with her fall, we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to her and that you would also bless Richard and Karen and us, Lord, as she recovers and the doctors figure out why this fall happened in the first place. We lift up to you Evelyn Cardenas and her family as some of them have um, been diagnosed with um, coronavirus. And we ask, Lord, that your healing would be upon her brother as he had been hospitalized for a time. They have them recover fully, that they may be able to be a part of this congregation as well um, to worship together, Lord, in many ways. We lift up to you, Lord, um, our community. There are a lot of people in our community who need your love right now. We know um, through um, the food drives, we've been able to meet some of their needs, Lord. We pray that in the next one too, you bless it and work through it. We pray, Lord God, that you would also have us be a church where our words and our actions, the truth and love are wedded together in such a wonderful way that others can look at us and go like, wow, what's going on there? Why is it that way? It's not about us, Lord. It's about you because in your words and in your actions, in your truth, being truth in human form, Lord Jesus, and showing love by sacrificing and dying and being love for us in our most deep and needy ways, Lord. You have shown us how we can follow you trusting in you, empowered by your spirit to love one another. So bless this fellowship, Lord, that we may love our brothers and sisters here and more to love this community as well beyond it. Bless us, Lord, too, as we come to offer our gifts and tithes and offerings this morning to you. When we make these offerings, Lord, they are just a token of giving our whole life to you, Lord, and you having your way with us. We pray for your will to be done in our lives. And we pray that you'd be with us, Lord, as we celebrate your love for us in a most personal and intimate way on the night when you were betrayed, Lord Jesus. We are amazed at that too. So as the offerings, are, a plate is going around, prepare our hearts to receive your, uh, your very presence in our lives. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.